This Washington Post Live podcast is presented by AT&T Business, keeping your business connected today and building it for tomorrow with 5G on America's best network. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Missouri Senator Roy Blunt joined the Washington Post to preview the Republican National Convention and discuss the issues that will drive the election in November. Let's listen. And you're here watching our Washington Post Live continuing coverage of the Republican National Convention, which kicks off uh, sort of today in uh, in all parts of the country. Uh, down in Charlotte, there is actual business happening. Um, and President Trump is finding ways to make news. Uh, our first guest this afternoon is Senator Roy Blunt, Republican of Missouri. He is uh, a critical person on many levels. He is the uh, four, number four ranking member of leadership. Um, he is also chair of the Senate Rules Committee, which sometimes is kind of described as a sleepy backwater, but boy, it is a, it is a hotbed of really interesting issues, which we'll get to, including election security, uh, postal service mail issues about how to secure elections. Um, and he is a key member of the Senate Appropriations Committee, which has had a lot of, uh, a lot of role in the COVID relief legislation that we've had up to $3 trillion of uh, rescue packages so far, and there's still more possibly to come. But uh, welcome aboard, Senator Blunt. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Paul. Great to be with you. Thanks for taking time with me today. Oh, yeah. Well, listen, uh, first of all, he, the, the, the extra bonus is that he, he is joining us from Charlotte in North Carolina, where he was on hand today for the, the kickoff uh, roll call of the states and such. So let, just give us your overview of sort of what you have actually seen personally so far, sort of what you thought was you were watching the DNC last week, which had this completely virtual setup, and now you're there in Charlotte. What's the vibe like? What's it feel like? And is this the is this the future, <laughs> or is this the past? Well, I sort of wondered the same thing, Paul. I was wondering as I watched last week, and as I was here this uh, today watching the roll call, seeing the vice president come down, the president come down. I I kept wondering, uh, is this the oddest convention ever, or is this more like conventions are going to be? Uh, in the future, the combination of virtual things happening uh, with another kind of setting that maybe is an immediate uh, setting. And uh, you know, we haven't had really a contested convention in the United States for a long time. So the purpose of meeting to determine the nominee hasn't been part of the process in a long time. And so we've seen these virtual conventions. I think the Democratic uh, convention last week was very much focused on let's make this a personality contest between uh, Vice President Biden and President Trump. And uh, I think the uh, convention here with the president's comments today that will, I think, go through uh, the same pattern this week is this election is actually about something rather than which of these two people you may like the best as opposed to which of these two people are going to address the issues that need to be dealt with uh, in the future. The uh, vice president got a lot of credit last week or a lot of attention saying, characters on the ballot. I think President Trump's going to talk, as he did today, about a whole list of other things that are on the ballot. Prosperity, security, uh, the uh, opportunity to get back to the economy that he'll want to talk about was the economy that really had dramatically moved forward in the first three years of this administration 
uh, to be impacted in an unanticipated way by by what happened with the uh, the uh, COVID-19 virus. And I think the president is going to do everything he can to be sure people believe that there are lots of things on the ballot. Uh, and this is more than just a, a choice of two different personalities. It's a choice of two different futures. But you, you say that, and um, one of the things that would most would happen in the earliest phase of a normal convention is the adoption of the platform. And you know the platform traditionally is thought of as the the policy proposals that a party stands for. And um, you folks didn't even come up with any platform. You just kind of rubber stamped the old one. I mean, is there really any sort of meat on the bones policy that this president is really pushing? You know, what is his what is his second term agenda? If if you can think of what it is, I'll well, be honest. I, I'm not. I think he would say that he had a lot of impact on the platform four years ago, and the second term agenda is more of the same. If you liked what you were seeing uh, before February or so of this year, uh, you're going to like what happens in the future. He's going to be talking about regulation, about uh, tax policy the growth. He's going to have Tim Scott talking about opportunity zones and how you reach out to communities that have been left behind in some way and areas in, in communities that have been left behind in some way uh, in the economic growth we were beginning to see. Uh, and so it's not just old, you know, new boss, same as the old boss. It's here was the 2016 platform. Uh, here's what we want to talk about, which is what we have done. If, if, if the president's going to be saying, here's what we've done. Uh, to move forward on those issues. And on the regulatory front, he's made a big difference on the, certainly if you look at the courts, a big difference. Uh, and if you look at the economy, you can say, as the Democrats will, this is somehow a continuation of the Obama economy. I don't think the facts bear that out. And uh, I think one question might be, were you better in January of this year than you were three years ago or four years ago? And almost every American if they look at that question, would say we absolutely were better off and we'd like to get back uh, to an America that has that kind of economy and that kind of opportunity. Now, I, I understand that because the, in January and February, the economy were, was, was doing fine. But how do you, you know, it's how you can't ignore the last five months. You know, the race has definitely seemed to change. How does, you know, what sort of discipline does he need to display to try to get, hammer home those issues that you're talking about? I mean, you, you can't just ignore what has happened in the last four to five months, just both in terms of the health crisis and the economic crisis. I think that's foremost on people's minds, isn't it? Well, I think, I think that's critically important. I think those two things are going to be the things people are voting on. And in areas where they're confused about those things, you know, the candidates are going to do everything they can to try to eliminate that confusion and say, no, this, this is the critical moment, not the other. And uh, I think the president has to point out and, and should be able to point out effectively that nobody anticipated uh, what would happen, the impact of the, the COVID virus. It was different than anybody thought, the long-term impact different than thought, the the break that every person guessed who had looked at these things in the past that we'd have in the summer didn't happen.
turned out to be much more highly contagious than other things we had dealt with. And, uh, you know, this will require some analysis of how uh, the Obama-Biden administration dealt with the H1N1, uh, and uh, they didn't deal with it very well. If you look back at what happened and what the president himself was saying, President Obama was saying right then, even though it had been turned over to, to Biden, the, the COVID effort has uh, it, been an incredible effort. It's almost like we're, we're reading the book while we're writing the book, or we're trying to build the plane while we're building the plane. And if the president's initiatives play, uh, pay off, in areas like testing and therapeutics and uh, vaccine, where uh, with warp speed or with the Shark Tank and text uh, and uh, testing, something that Senator Alexander and I spent a lot of time encouraging, uh, we'll have a better way to respond to a pandemic in every future case than anyone's had before. Uh, and um, there's still some of this to be done. You know, we're 75 days away from the election. Uh, in um, the world that we've lived in the last four years, a lot happens every 75 days. And I think there'll be a lot of new information for voters to look at uh, between now and election day. Well, how does he make the case? President Trump has, has rallied his base in ways that almost no president of our lifetime uh, has. He really has and uh, just a really strong allegiance um, with that base. How does he try to branch out and grow while grow to appeal to swing voters if the, how much of the, the convention is really focusing on people like your constituents from St. Louis who are gonna be appear at the convention who uh, pulled guns out in the middle of the, of the protest march. It seems like there's a focus on culture war issues and a lot of what is going to happen in the next four nights. And does that really appeal to swing voters that he needs in places like outside Philadelphia, outside Milwaukee, and, uh, and in Michigan? Well, I think the president's always been a little bit hard to poll on issues like that. You know, what are people going to be thinking about as, as they see continued uh, uh, the chaos in some of our cities? What are they going to be thinking about when they see demonstrations that they support you know along with me almost three quarters of americans supported the protests that occurred after the george floyd killing uh but three quarters of americans also were not supportive of the chaos that sometimes surrounded those protests often with different people sometimes with the same people uh, and uh, how, how people feel about that how they feel about uh, the uh, defunding of the police and the Democrats can say all they want to that, no, we're not for that. We've never been for that, uh, but uh, they've, they've said it and they're gonna have to own a part of that. Uh, I don't know exactly how any of that will poll between now and election day, but I think some of the groups that the president has had uh, problems with, the highly educated people living in suburban communities, for instance, those are clearly troublesome areas for Republicans in the last two or three years. Uh, but there are also areas where people are concerned about safety and security. Uh, we'll just have to see how the president connects on those issues and whether uh, Vice President Biden can uh, do a job of, of, of convincing people that there's going to be 
solutions to those problems uh, if uh, he's elected as well. Okay, um, let me ask you really uh, a, a parochial Missouri question. You know, I'm I'm old enough. I've got the gray hair now to to remember. Missouri used to be a, just a real battleground state. You know, in 2000, 2000, Bush Gore fought furiously for Missouri. You had that incredible Senate race in 2000 there. You know, as recently as 2016, you had a Democratic governor. Um, but in 2016, that it broke hard for Trump, and you won re-election. Is Missouri ever going to be really competitive again? I don't know. Certainly it's changed. When I was elected statewide the first time, when I was elected Secretary of State, I was the first Republican that had uh, won that office in 52 years. Uh, and uh, that was very much the point we were at a couple of decades ago. Uh, even in 2016, the only statewide elected Republicans uh, were the Lieutenant Governor and me. Uh, and 2016 saw a big change, a number of uh, a lot of people that, frankly, had never voted for Republicans before uh, looked at President, at candidate Trump. They liked what he had to say, uh, and uh, it, it was a significant uh, change in election. Uh, and uh, the uh, Obama uh, election, the uh, first Obama election, that was also a hard-fought uh, election, uh, and... Uh, then after that, uh, not so much. Uh, Obama didn't try as hard in Missouri in uh, 16 as he did, or in uh, 12 rather, as he did in eight. And we seem to have broken that almost 100 years of virtually a perfect record of voting for the winner in presidential elections and transitioning very slowly from a Democrat state to a state that now appears to be much more Republican and maybe likely to be that way for a while, Paul. What was it like, uh, you're from a more, what we call traditional Republican background. Um, and what is it like campaigning on the same ticket as Donald Trump? You did it four years ago um, and you know you you stuck with him. There were, there were some of your colleagues, especially after the Access Hollywood tape, uh, came out, some abandoned Trump, and uh, you stuck with him. What What is it like trying to run on the same ticket with this larger-than-life personality? Well, he is that. He is that, and, you know, he, he uh, has an impact on, on people and crowds like no politician I've seen before. There's almost a kinetic energy that develops it. I saw it happen again here this morning between the four or 500 people that were at Charlotte and him, they moved up in a very socially distanced event. They moved up pretty close and you could tell that he was enjoying that and connecting with them in ways that most politicians don't. I think to my, my colleagues, my recommendation would be uh, just remember you actually understand your state better than anybody else uh, does that's involved in this. Uh, better than the National Republican Party, better than the president. Uh, doesn't mean the president's not going to run well, uh, but it does mean that in the states where uh, we, we can still win states that the president doesn't carry. And, and you know, right now we're uh, worried about some states we think the president won't carry that have a Republican senator, uh, some states that the president uh, will carry but still have a Republican senator. 
in a competitive race. And I think there's a lot of focus on the importance of Republicans keeping the Senate. Uh, I think that's going to happen. And uh, these candidates need to be able to explain how they understand their state better than anybody else does and how they're going to represent their state in ways that the people that they get to work for would feel good about. So I, I think you can uh, be part of a Republican, a greater Republican movement and still be part of uh, identifying as an individual who understands your state and wants to represent uh, that state in the Congress or wants to represent that state as governor. And uh, that's uh, politicians have been doing that pretty, pretty vigorously since the 1950s. And I think we'll figure that out this time as well. Okay, you referenced this earlier. Uh, your first statewide office was uh, Secretary of State. That is the person who is in charge of, of, of protecting and overseeing elections. Um, if you were a Secretary of State right now, uh, would you feel that this, this election is safe and secure, both in terms of you know, meddling, foreign meddling, intelligence reports seem to suggest that they're still trying to do that. Um, would you feel safe on that front? And what would you be uh, doing would you, in terms of mail balloting and how would you handle that? Well, I'm on the Intelligence Committee as well and, and taking that background to the Intelligence Committee, I, I hope has put me in the middle of uh, these discussions as to what we need to do to help be sure that we have the securest elections we could possibly uh, have. Uh, I, one thing I'd know for sure if I was the Secretary of State in a state where you're the chief election official this year as opposed to four years ago, the one thing I'd absolutely be sure of is I have a lot more access to federal assistance than I had before, that the federal government has worked harder than it, it had before to develop a sense of communication and trust. I, I've monitored that very carefully in the Intelligence Committee and our all my colleagues have been updated with some frequency by the various groups that have been re reaching out to uh, the states. Uh, also, by the way, we've developed a fairly aggressive ability that uh, the president, the President Obama didn't allow to have a offensive strategy in cyber war as well as a defensive uh, as well as a defensive strategy. So in 2018, you know, the federal government uh, did some things to shut down uh, groups that were trying to infiltrate our election systems or to put out uh, information that we uh, clearly understood was not correct. They're going to be doing that again. But I think state officials uh, feel a much greater level of support than they have before. On the election security side, I think our elections are much more secure than they were four years ago or four years uh, before that. And on the mail-in voting side, uh, I, I have had a lot of experience with this. And like every other election official, state or local, I've seen ballots come in days after the election and days after uh, they legally could be counted. And that that is just a part of the process. It's part of the reason, Paul, the best place the, the best place to cast a ballot with the most security and the likelihood it will for sure be counted is at a polling place on election day uh, they know you you know them you verify that you're a voter that's eligible to vote in that polling place 
you have all the information available to every voter. The campaign has played its way out and you see that ballot go into the ballot box. You are virtually 100% sure that that ballot is going to be counted that night. Uh, there are all kinds of stories now, as more people have voted by mail this year, that a problem that was always a problem is just bigger because more people are voting by mail. And so the encouragement uh, to get that ballot in the mail early, to don't wait until the day before the election and just hope and pray it gets there by whatever the deadline for your state is, it could still be counted. Uh, and we're going to have uh, some likely ballots not counted as we always do, but because you're going to have more people vote by mail, the way to minimize uh, problems of your ballot being counted is don't wait too late to send that ballot out. The president's working hard to try to draw a distinction between a ballot you ask for, that could be a traditional absentee ballot or even in a vote by mail state where you have to ask for a ballot, as opposed to a ballot they just send you. Uh, and there's also a lot of information out now about how many of those ballots that get sent out come back with the information that that person doesn't live there uh, anymore. Uh, but uh, we want to be sure that people who vote at their polling place feel good about their vote being counted and that people who vote somewhat, vote by mail uh, also feel like that their ballot has the best chance of possible to be part of deciding who wins these elections this year. But then don't you have, isn't there some sort of need for more funds for either the states and localities to ha keep open polling places? Because some of the stories out of the primaries were that there were fewer and fewer polling places that were open out of the fear of coronavirus and people not wanting to wait in long lines. And then they, cre they closed down polling places and then that created long lines. Is there not some sort of need for additional funding, both for the Postal Service and for localities to carry out an election safely? Well, I think there, I think there is. Now, we states, uh, the, the, the states as of March of this year had about $800 million unspent, some of which had been setting in their accounts since 2002 in the case of some states. So there's some money out there. I've, Senator Klobuchar uh, from Minnesota and I have been working on this together to try to come up with a way to see that states have the funding they need. Part of that is the ability to have more flexibility of, of spending the money you already have, a smaller uh, match, a greater flexibility in what you can spend that money for. Uh, and, and part of it is uh, to have money that is in addition to that 800 billion or whatever percentage of that is still left that the 800 million or whatever percentage of that that's still left that the uh, uh, states have. I, I think uh, the president's negotiators have offered a couple hundred million. The state Senate and House Republicans have uh, legislation that says they'd like to see another 400 million go to the states. Uh, but let me say this, with 75 or so days left, the money becomes less helpful the longer we wait to get it uh, to the states. Uh, and uh, I'd like to see it part of a package that would see that the states got money. In terms of the, the post office, uh, as I said, well, I'm, I'm supportive of legislation that Senator Collins uh, and Senator Feinstein have uh, 
put together where the post office over the next foreseeable period of time would get up to $25 million. But let's be truthful about this. The vote in the House this weekend, the idea that $25 million could somehow be spent in a way that would save uh, the post office in this election is just not reasonable. The post office has a balance that's been established by the Postmaster General. They're willing to use that $15 billion balance or so they already have between now and election day and focus on first class mail and especially on ballots. Uh, but in the long term, we need to do some things that make the post office work better uh, than it's working now. Um, I'm, I've long been part of that. Senator Collins has long been an advocate of that and, and we need to do that. But I, I think the postal issue has been blown way out of proportion. Uh, drop boxes that don't have mail in them uh, shouldn't, don't need to be checked every day, which is why the last Postmaster General said, we're gonna look at these blue boxes and if they don't get mail, we're not gonna have somebody go by every single day and check and see if they have mail. Uh, we're gonna use our efforts in a greater way to be sure that the mail gets to people when it needs to get to people. And so good management practices are a fine thing, but right now assuring people that the Postal Service is gonna work uh, for them and for this election process for people who need to vote by mail is an important message for the Congress to send. But to try to scare people into thinking the post office can't do its job or won't do its job is a huge disservice to the people that work for the post office and frankly, to those of us the post office serves. Okay, uh, another issue that is before the Senate Rules Committee um, that you've been working on is um, potentially having COVID testing for senators, for members of Congress and staff uh, inside the building to try and do what some schools and colleges are doing and businesses. Is there any update on that? Well, I think testing is a critically important part to getting back to school and getting back to work. Uh, and, and I think we could lead in that in a significant way. One of the reasons I wanted to come to Charlotte was to see what they were doing here at this convention where I think every delegate, I think everybody that went into the convention hall uh, had a test. I know I had one. Uh, I think everybody had one, had a test while they were here, a quick response test that took less than 15 minutes to get an answer to. There was a, uh, a vital circle effort here where the delegates actually uh, had a uh, monitor that kind of, if they wound up at some point getting COVID, they knew what other delegates they had been close to during the time they were here. I thought the convention did a very good job. People had their mask on, they kept their mask on, uh, and uh, unless they were speaking. And I, I thought the convention did a good job. I think the, the Senate can and should do uh, a better job on this. And we're continuing to look for a way in some ways, the, the Senate, every time we come back, is like the people that came to this convention. Uh, people that come from all over the country, let's say the Congress generally, 535 people go out all over the country, almost all of them on a plane going one way and a plane going back. Many of them, two planes going one way and two planes coming back. Uh, it, it's almost a perfect Petri dish for uh, how you'd 
try to expand a virus if you wanted to come up with a perfect way to do it. I think we've been pretty careful under the rules the rules committees established in the Senate for mask and distancing and uh, other things and, and lots of uh, lots of hand washing and lots of, of, of disinfectant. But I, I think we can and should add testing to that. And, and I continue to hope we uh, get to that conclusion here quickly. We've been talking to the Air Force about a test they've uh, been using, and I think we could partner with them uh, in the short term and uh, hope we figure out a way to do that. Okay, so we're still at no resolution on that. Um, let's, in terms of just looking forward into your crystal ball, two things. This is just going to be a sort of final question. Um, handicap the overall Senate map uh, and whether or not you think Republicans can keep the majority. And then also going forward to January 20th, one of your other roles is as you get to chair the inaugural committee. Um, will you be on January 20th, will you be the minority ranking member of the inaugural committee or will you be the chair in the majority still? And will we have an inauguration that is big outdoors on the mall or something smaller? Well, I prefer to be the chair as the ranking member on the committee. And, uh, you know, the rules committee is sort of the daily operational committee of, of the uh, Senate. And that particularly uh, applies to the chair of that committee that varies if it's a if it's a police, capital police problem, it's my problem. If it's a cafeteria workers problem, it's my problem. If it's access to the Capitol during uh, this time we're in right now, that's something that I'm involved in every day as the chairman of that committee. Uh, and uh, not everybody thinks that would be the best assignment, but it certainly uh, does allow you every day to be in the middle of a lot of different and important discussions. I think I will be the chairman. I think we've got better candidates out there. Got a couple of races where former presidential candidates decided, well, okay, I'll do that, even though I've said repeatedly I didn't want to. Uh, in states like Montana and Colorado, one, I think candidates matter. Two, I think the candidate that really didn't want to run seldom wins the kind of bare knuckle races these Senate fights uh, have become. I think we're going to be in the majority, but 75 days in politics uh, is a long time and we'd have to see what happens. In terms of the inauguration itself, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. It's clearly something we're thinking about. I think we'll be outside unless the weather makes it impossible to be outside. And my guess is we'll be outside in some sort of socially distanced way, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we can have vigorous uh, discussions and the person who gets inaugurated president that day or the president who gets inaugurated for the second term uh, needs to have some input there and we need to try to deal with that input. But I do think it's reasonable to assume that unless something dramatically changes, while we'll be outside uh, in all likelihood, it'll probably look different outside uh, than it's looked in quite a while. But uh, we will still uh, be that lesson to the world of how democracies are supposed to operate. And uh, it's it's a day where we project to the world who we are uh, more and differently, I think, than we do any other time in that four-year period of time. 
Well, listen, thank you very much. That was Senator Roy Blunt coming to us from Charlotte, where the convention actually sort of kind of took off today. Uh, thanks for watching Washington Post Live. I'm now going to hand off to incredible columnist Karen Tumulty, uh, esteemed, esteemed writer, uh, who will be talking to one of President Trump's closest allies, Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Thanks, Senator Blunt. We'll see you back in the Capitol in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.